The following program is part of the Inner Circle Podcasting Group. Go to innercirclecomics.com for more high-quality podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by the Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and by listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click Donate Now to become a supporter. Hello, this is David Marquez. I am the artist of Invincible Iron Man, Miles Morales, the Ultimate Spider-Man, and the Joiners in 3D. And you are listening to the Two-Headed Nerd with Joe and Matt. Sort of break it, break it down like good. Broadcasting of the Ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area. It is my pleasure to welcome you to THN episode 232, where we're talking comics and nerd news for the week of Wednesday, November 18th. My name is Matt Baum. It's at Matt Baumstein on the Twitter. And when I'm not handing down strict fantasy football justice that would make Roger Goodell weep, I'm writing the comic speculator blog for WorkPoint.com. I don't know what that means. And I'm Joe Patrick. That's at JoePatrick116 on the Twitter. And when I'm not getting caught colluding with our lawyer in THN fantasy football. Cheater. I'm cheating at something else from my office in beautiful downtown Omaha. In this week's Turkey Day episode, you hear our reviews of The Black Knight, number one, and Huck, number one. After that, Joe and I will roast a turkey speedster style while we review ten more of this week's comics during the ludicrous speed round. Then, we'll visit the teach and Sanctum Sanctorum. We'll be serving Thanksgiving dinner with the help of Ma Hunkle and wrapping them on some of next week's comics. And then... It's time to explore the dangers of harvesting space whale poop with Craig Thompson when we review his graphic novel, Space Dumplings. And finally, what's Thanksgiving without an extra helping? For dessert, we'll be serving up some words of wisdom from our newest love slave and resident lady nerd, Elise Wisdom. So put on your bibs, nerds, because this meal's going to be a messy one. And then we can talk about this week's... The entire first season of Marvel's latest direct-to-Netflix show, Jessica Jones, dropped yesterday as we record this. To the delight of Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23 fans <laughs> everywhere. It's a very different bee. It's a totally different bee. Still a bee. Yeah. Now, Matt and I have seen at least some of the show, and we're going to get right into it with our spoiler-free first impressions. We promise not to ruin anything yeah, for yeah. you guys. Matt. How late did you stay up binging, and how many episodes did you make it through? I only watched the first two episodes. I watched five episodes. That's ridiculous. You need to get a life. <laughs> I was up until 3.30 this morning. <laughs> I regret nothing. You also need to get your script done earlier. <laughs> Listen. No, so far, it struck me as a little cheesy at first, the way they were narrating it. Very, like, old school Dick Wolf detective show. But that like, was Alias. I live in a dirty city where dirty people do dirty stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Whatever. But it kind of grew on me. But got, that was what Alias was. And that was how they did Alias. It was, like, it in the first episode especially, I noticed it was very, like, jazzy, noir yeah, soundtrack. Yeah, totally. I kind of noticed it just fade away, like they stopped with the... Yeah, you had to wonder if some point... Sexy detective saxophone music. The director was like, okay, this is cheese ball. We're done doing this. But I loved it in the first... Like, I really enjoyed I it. I didn't mind it. I didn't mind it. I, and it's very well written. It's very dark. It's dark, yeah. Very dark. And, like, there's full-on sex scenes. There's weird sexual perversion going on. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Well, there's a guy and his sister. Ew. They weren't, like, dating. They, they were, were roommates. standing around in his underwear. There's something going on there, dude. Oh anyway. gosh. I thought it's a really good character piece, and then very suddenly, they drop superpowers on you. Yeah. 
like very suddenly. It's kind of subtle how they it's it's sort of like Daredevil where yeah. You know that it's in this world, but they don't really beat your head over. Yeah, they're not, they don't really beat you over the head with it. It's not like they're running around going, oh, after the New York event, the Avengers well, beat the Chitauri. <laughs> actually, I will say that having viewed a little less than half of it, they do kind of hammer home the whole Avengers and superpowers thing a little bit more than Daredevil did. Okay, I would say up through... The beginning of episode three, I don't feel like they did that. So that must have happened. Yes. Okay. Um, it, it, it's kind of part of the plot. The idea that there are these people with powers is, is sort of part of the plot. So there's a lot yeah. more mention of it in this show than there was in Daredevil. Because in Daredevil, his powers are so subtle. Right. They barely even make reference to the fact that he's got radar sense yeah, and all that much. stuff. But it's much more prominent here. So, I do really like Luke Cage. I think Luke Cage is great. I really like Luke I Cage. I love the guy that they they got to play Luke Cage. Yeah, they changed now they changed him a bit. He's like a bar owner. And but not so much yes, so he's but, unrecognizable or okay. anything. Uh, I'm trying to tread lightly on spoilers here. They do get into their backstory in later episodes. And so without spoiling too much, I will say that I was satisfied with how closely their histories mirror the comic book versions. Does he mention Danny? No. Okay. Not yet. Not yet. But he does have his own show yeah. coming up. Yeah. So it's vague, but it's close enough that I went, yep, that's what happened in the yeah. comics. And so, yes, he owns the bar and he's not a hero for hire and or at least not yet. Or we don't know that part of him yet. But I really uh, am impressed by how closely it is sticking to the source material. Yeah, very much so. So far, the world is cool. The surrounding characters are cool. The look is cool. It does feel very standalone to me, which I guess Daredevil kind of did too. And part of me keeps hoping Foggy Nelson is going to like show up and serve her papers or something. And man, got to do something like that, right? Yeah, I will say that so far it takes place in Hell's Kitchen. Right. And they don't mention at all the fact that there's a dude running around in a red outfit. Yeah, but we also don't really know when it's taking place. Maybe it's taking place at the same time. So maybe by episode six, that's sure. what's happening. Uh, again, and we'll I see. am only a handful of episodes in. It's just possible they haven't gotten around to it and they will mention it. Uh, I'm just really enjoying it so far. And I have to say, I was 100% wrong about Kristen Ritter in this role. She's still a little waif for me. I wish she was a little beefier, but you know, whatever. All in all, I'm going to binge watch this. The action is great. The acting is good. It's a little more cerebral than what we got in Daredevil, which was a little more action-driven. Mm -hmm. But I think this looks great so far. I, it's a ton of fun. I'm really impressed by it. Yeah. Joe, the ink isn't even dry on the first issue of Dark Knight 3, The Master Race. And Frank Miller is already announcing he's going to create yet another Dark Knight sequel after this volume wraps up. Hooray. Do you give even the slightest of about this. I do not. I do not either. And I don't understand why anyone is excited. In an interview with Newsarama, Miller expressed his desire to create another installment in the franchise, though DC has stated that there's nothing currently planned along those lines. Yeah, it's funny. So Miller's like, yep, I'm going to do another one. And DC, in a separate statement, was like, we have no plans for more. <laughs> yeah. So DK4, he's saying he's going to do solo. Right. So not even Brian Azzarello knows about it. <laughs> so there, there's been a lot coming out this week about how much did Frank Miller 
actually contribute to Dark Knight 3 colon the master race? Yeah. Or is it just sort of like when they go, Frank Miller's RoboCop, written and drawn by people that have nothing to do with Frank Miller, <laughs> right. based on an idea that Frank Miller may or may not have had. So what Miller has said is that he intends for Dark Knight 4 to be a continuation of the master race story. But really, Dark Knight 3 was Brian Azzarello's brainchild. And Frank is certainly involved, but maybe not as much as we think he is. Dark Knight 3 might end up being amazing, but it is impossible to get excited for that one, let alone a fourth one. Yeah. It's after the spectacular show that was the Dark Knight Strikes Again. Yeah, I don't know why anybody would be excited about this or Frank Miller, period, anymore. Like, I feel like we're all over it. The Holy Terror came out and everybody just went, God, not only is this horrible, it's completely racist. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a little bit more about Dark Knight 3 a little later in the show. Oh, boy. <laughs> when we get to the Sanctum Sanctorum, spoilers, uh, I didn't pick why? anything I was actually excited about again this week. <laughs> You're so vain. You probably think this song so let's move on to some of your topics. It looks like. Star Wars The Force Awakens is already breaking box office records before the film even hits theaters. Good lord. Online ticket retailer Fandango has reportedly confirmed that advanced ticket sales for Star Wars have topped $50 million, surpassing the previous record holder, which was The Hunger Games. Eat that, Katniss. Yeah! Estimates place Star Wars The Force Awakens opening weekend ahead of Jurassic World's 208.8 million. However, no December box office debut has ever topped $100 million. What? Ever. That's crazy. So it is estimated that Star Wars will play on at least 4,000 screens. It hits on December 18th. Matt, does Star Wars have what it takes to top Avatar as the most successful film of all time? I don't think there's any question. And it's not just because I'm more excited for Star Wars. I just don't think there's any question that this wins. Like, if I'm a betting man, 10 to 1, it does. It's been about a month, wouldn't you say, since that Monday Night Football yeah. trailer came out? And that's when they opened ticket sales. And broke the internet. Yeah, like crashed sites left and right. Yeah. I'm actually a little surprised that it's only $50 million. Really? I kind of was expecting that number to be a little higher. It's the number one in pre-order. Oh, so. sure. That's that doesn't mean like when it actually it'll no. it'll drop on even though the premiere is December 18th. Right. That number will be up higher before then. Never underestimate how lazy everyone is. Fair. <laughs> I haven't bought my tickets. I yet. haven't either. So I mean, I think it's very safe to say this kicks the crap out of Jurassic Park's opening weekend of 208. My guess, if I have to put a number on it, I'm gonna say. I was going to say 220. I'm going down. 212. I'm going to say it beats it by 4 million. Why? Because 220 is outrageous. When the highest is. You think an extra $8 million is, is, yeah, well, is I mean, too, but, a bridge too far? Well, keep in mind, I mean, we're talking millions of dollars. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say $230 million. Okay. Let's do a nerd bet on it. I don't really feel like we have to do a nerd bet because we both agree it's going to beat everything. No, but we're calling our shot. We're calling our shot. It's a nerd bet. I'm All writing right. it down. Nerd bet. I cannot conceive of a world where everyone does not completely stop what they're doing to go watch Star Wars. Oh, no, obviously. Here's to hoping to beat Avatar. Here's That's really to all I like cared about. All-time box office. Avatar has made like $2.78 billion, which is just yeah. disgusting. You know, I hope it <laughs> smashes it. 
I hope James Cameron sucks. just. I hope Star Wars is so successful that James Cameron just decides not to make any more. Like throws himself out a play class window. <laughs> it's like, well, fine, I won't do it again then. Let's get back to comic book news, shall we? Though reportedly in the works for months, Marvel has finally announced a creative team for the long-awaited Mockingbird solo series. The series is going to be written by Chelsea Kane, who wrote the Mockingbird Shield 50th anniversary one-shot, and will feature art by Kate Nemechek. In a post on Marvel.com, Kane spoke out about the character saying she's never had her own book, and even the one-shot was part of the 50th anniversary Shield. She never has had her own book. She has never had her own uh, series. No, she had a mini? There was a Hawkeye and Mockingbird series. Yeah, she's never been the star of her own mini. No. She's been really underserved by the Marvel Universe. I agree. So I love the idea of giving her a chance to be the center of a story and really have some agency. Nice use of agency. Joe, are you ready for Mockingbird to finally get the spotlight? I'm excited for this. I love Mockingbird. I think she's a cool character. Yes, she is a very... Let's let's call let's be generous and call it an homage to Black Canary. Right. Uh, but I think she's super cool. I've she's always enjoyed Mockingbird. A bit of a blank slate too. Like they can really yeah, kind of flesh her out. They, I I liken this to when Ed Brubaker took over Iron Fist and said, "Hey, you know what? Let's do something with this character rather than he's just a karate guy." I'm hoping they dig into Mockingbird a little bit. Yeah. We learn who Bobby is. Chelsea Kane talked about how. The series is going to address the ramifications of uh, Nick Fury exposing her to the Infinity Formula, which happened several years ago, if I recall. Time out. Which Nick Fury? Nick Fury, Nick Fury, I think. But yeah, to save her life, Nick Fury gave her a dose of Infinity Formula. The Hawkeye and Mockingbird series went away years ago. Yeah. So And it was really good. Yeah. That Hawkeye Jim and McCann. Mockingbird series was fun. Really fun. Although... I didn't need them starting a whole nother secret agency. We have plenty of those. Just being yeah, I, yes, but we're, we're we've moved on from that. So this new series is going to deal with the fact that she's got this infinity formula in her blood and she's got to go in for constant checkups. Chelsea Kane said uh, that it would be funny to explore the idea of what happens when superheroes need to go to the doctor. Yeah. Not like the night nurse, which is emergency, like urgent care. I have a gunshot wound. Right, like sew me up. I can't go to the hospital. This is the quote. I love the idea of this medical clinic for superheroes, a place where they go to get stitched up and get their Prozac filled. Uh, and then the waiting room would be full of bored heroes leaving through old issues of Us That's Weekly. That's great. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I really loved the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. Mockingbird one shot. I am a little bummed that Joelle Jones isn't drawing it. She drew that one shot. She was great. But Joelle Jones is continuing on with Lady Killer, I believe. So she's got her own uh, stuff going on. Yeah. And Nemechek's art looks really good. It's it's good. It's got this kind of uh, softer uh, manga kind of style. But and it's, it's not, good. It's not outrageous or cartoony. No. I mean, of course, this news comes on the heels of the announcement that... Tyra from Friday Night Lights will be spinning off into her own TV show. Tyra's Adrian Palicki, who plays Mockingbird on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I'm sure it'll be fun. I don't mind her on that show. I think she looks great for the part. I don't think you could have picked a better actress yeah. to play Mockingbird. I think she's very good on the show. I, she was a very welcome addition. And I think that the new show is going to be actually her and the British ex-husband, whatever guy, Hunter, maybe is his name. 
Oh, right. The British guy. I think yeah. it's like them spinning off together, doing their own adventures. And they kind of made him up. He doesn't exist, right? No. Uh, Lance Hunter, I think is his name. And he does exist in the comics. But oh, he's an MI6 guy that works with S.H.I.E.L.D. He's very different in the comics yes. than he is in the show. Yeah. What are you talking about? Oh, have you not heard? It was my understanding that everyone had heard. Heard what? Brian, don't! If you like discuss these stories and everything else we missed, hit us up on the THN forums where I have written a letter to poor confused Tyra from Friday Night Lights to let her know I would treat her better than that jerk Tim Riggins ever did. Every Sunday, the stuffing in my turkey hole, Joe Patrick posts the question of the week in the THN forums. Gross. Joey, <laughs> what are we asking the nerds this week? So this week's question comes once again from Joe Benkis, the casual comics guy. I miss that guy. We haven't seen him for a while. This does not go towards Gucci status because he does not submit. This isn't two in a row, but this is, I believe, his second question that he has submitted. Okay. For those... Those of you on Goocher Watch. <laughs> Goocher Watch. So, quote, I had a weird night, so bear with me. Whoa. I just came to the boards to glance at this week's question of the week. The forum shows the title, definitive artist, and the username of the last poster. In this case, it was Harvey Locust. Somehow, my brain registered this week's question of the week as definitive haircut, <laughs> which I would now love to discuss more than anything. Like a, we call that a happy little accident. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about some characters that have had many different haircuts over the years and which one was the best. Oh, yeah. For instance, to me, Storm will always have a mohawk end of story end quote. I love this. Now, to me, I, I just read this more as like who's got the greatest haircut in comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the definitive haircut because like Superman had a mullet. You know, and like that was definitely not our Superman. <laughs> sure. But this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm bringing to the table. You can you can talk about characters that have had lots of different haircuts. Sure. Uh, Sean just pointed out Longshot. Perfect. Right. My brain immediately goes to somebody who's always had the exact same haircut, like Legion. Okay. Yeah. Like the, <laughs> Wham! <laughs> yeah. You know, the weird high top. So we're saying favorite haircut in comics okay. from any era. Sure. Pick a character. Best haircut. I love this. You have until 5 p.m. Central Standard Time this coming Friday, November 27th. That's Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. To get us your answer, you can call and leave a message using Skype. The handle's two-headed nerd, all one word. Or you can call the Ziggurat hotline, 402-819-4894. And if you're feeling frisky, nope. And if you're feeling festive, you can send an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. This is Thanksgiving. Yeah. But keep it under two minutes. You'll get cut off. Matt is does not have the spirit of the holiday. There's nothing to do with holiday spirit. It's about rules. If you need more time than that, feel free to write your full answer in the question of the week section of the THN web forums, and then tune in next Thursday to hear you and your fellow listeners on the THN Answer of the Week podcast. We'll be back. We took a week off, but we're back. We're back. It's review time in Ziggurat, where Joe and I butter a casserole dish, lay two of this week's comics in the bottom, then cover them with green beans, cream of mushroom soup, bake for two hours at 350 degrees, and garnish with crispy fried onions just to see how they taste. Joe! What are we snacking on this week? I hate green bean casserole. I hate it too. It's disgusting. This week, I am reviewing Black Knight number one from Marvel Comics, written by Frank Thierry, with art by Luca Pizzari, and colors by Antonia... Tabella.
It's 32 pages for $3.99. Here's the solicit. What do you do when it's your destiny to be damned? For centuries, that is the question that has plagued each wielder of the Ebony Blade, with all of them eventually meeting untimely ends due to the sword's curse. Bummer. And it is the question that the current Black Knight, Dane Whitman, must ask himself as his addiction to the blade grows ever stronger, and he finds himself in the aptly named Weird World. What are the circumstances that brought him to leave Earth and enter this strange and dangerous realm? I hope you weren't looking for answers. <laughs> and what do the Uncanny Avengers have to do with it? How did Dane Cook become the Black Knight? <laughs> <laughs> Find out here in this new ongoing tale of sword sorcery and one man struggle to not lose his soul. I don't think I've ever brought this up on the show, but I love the Black Knight. I also love the Black Knight. I would go as far as to say Black Knight, most underused Avenger. Yeah. Agreed. Safely, right? I love Black Most Knight. Interesting and underused adventure. I've been fascinated by the character ever since I first saw him in Roger Stern and John Buscema's classic Avengers Under Siege storyline in the 80s. If you haven't read it, it is one of the greatest Avengers stories of all time. It's very, very good. Where the masters of evil invade Avengers Mansion. Yes. And really screw some shit up. I even loved the leather jacket wearing, laser sword wielding version from the 90s. I did not. A younger Steve Epting yes. brought us some of that artwork. So I was pumped when Marvel announced that Dane Whitman, not Dane Cook, would be getting his own series and having it set in Weird World was just the icing on the cake. Then I found out that Frank Thierry was writing it and I got a little less excited. The man that put a puppy in the microwave in the pages of Wolverine. Yeah. That is how I will always remember it. And then I actually <laughs> read the thing and wondered why I let myself get my hopes up. <laughs> Like all Anad titles, I assume Black Knight takes place eight months following the end of Secret Wars, but since the character wasn't really prominently running around in the Marvel Universe before the event... Okay, I gotta... When you say prominently, I'm going to go as far as say not running around the Marvel like Universe. It's like zero, right? Yeah. It's not just <laughs> like, me. So whether he was around or not, he was obviously unmemorable. And so picking up his story in midstream just seemed needlessly confusing. Thierry makes some effort to fill in the backstory with narration and flashbacks, but it just skims the backstory of the character and does little to explain why he's in Weird World and what the hell is going on. Thierry pads out the cast with some cliched fantasy characters whose names you'll have forgotten as soon as you've read them. Yeah, it's like Veridin and yeah. Larynx or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> There is an action scene at the beginning with only the thinnest of ties to what I assume is the ongoing plot of the first arc, but it's hard to tell because instead of showing it through the story, the characters just vaguely explain things for 20 pages. Yeah. It's impossible to latch on to Dane, his supporting cast, or their story in this first issue. Kazara's loose art looks unfinished. He doesn't bother to fill in backgrounds in 90% of the panels, making this world feel empty and boring. If the script didn't explicitly state that they were in Weird World, there would be no telling by the art. Yeah, you could say, okay, they're in the past? Poughkeepsie. Yeah. <laughs> they're in Poughkeepsie. <laughs> they're in Saskatchewan. <laughs> some of these characters have some really alarming things happening to their anatomy as well. The colors by Fabella don't help either. Instead of taking her cues from Mike Del Mundo's lush Weird World palette, Fabella washes everything in drab browns and grays, making everything look dull and muddy. Yeah, it felt like Army of Darkness, 
where they're like, all right, we're in the past, but really they're just like somewhere in Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) This comic is the textbook example of not judging a book by its cover, which is stunning, by the way, courtesy of Julian Totino Tedesco. I love his pizzas. I do too. Heir to the Totino's pizza fortune. Yeah. If you saw that cover and hoped for some great fantasy action, or if you were itching to return to the weird world of Aaron and Del Mundo's series, you are going to be sorely disappointed. I'm giving Black Knight number one a leave it. I'm with you. This just feels like a waste for a character that is so interesting that we've both loved for a long time. And I'm sorry, setting it in weird world just automatically says to me, doesn't count. Nothing to worry about here. We can do whatever we want with the character because none of it counts. It will have no action in the real Marvel universe whatsoever. But Weird World is in the Marvel universe. I get it. It's on Earth. I get it. But it's also a chance to... To segregate him from everything else. Right. Yeah. And this just felt rushed. This felt absolutely rushed. Like two weeks ago, they went, oh, crap, we were going to make a Black Knight comic. Like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) we paid that guy to paint that beautiful cover. Yeah. This just does nothing for the character. It doesn't make him any more interesting. It doesn't look into his background. It drops him into a bad storyline, very predictable fantasy. And it goes, I go back to my army of darkness. It's the same thing where it's like, here's a silly story where they're defending a castle from a bunch of bad guys go. And it worked in army of darkness because that is a silly story. The Black Knight is a very interesting character. This doesn't do anything for him at all. The art is terrible. I'm giving this a lead. Right, I'll do you for that. You what? Come here. What are you going to do, bleed on me? I'm invincible. You're a loony. The Black Knight always triumphs. How about you? Matt, Come on. <laughs> tell me something good. <laughs> what did you review this week? This week, I picked Huck, number one, from Image, written by Mark Millar, with art by Ralphiel Albuquerque. It was 32 pages for 350. I cannot think of a more divisive writer in comics than Mark Millar. You either love the guy or you hate him. I've always thought of Millar as the P.T. Barnum of comics. No matter what he's selling, he's going to be the first to tell you how great it's going to be. (laughs) Well, I had no idea what to expect here. It's a story of a small town with a secret. The secret is Huck. A mountain of a man with super strength, agility, and the ability to find lost objects or people. But he's more interested in doing good deeds than fighting crime. Huck is the polar opposite of Superman, though. He doesn't wear a costume, he operates in secret and often at night, and he doesn't want anyone to know who's behind his do-gooding. The town has figured out it's Huck behind all the strange and sometimes seemingly impossible good deeds, but they've also all agreed to keep it a secret. In the first few pages, we meet Diane. She's a woman who just moved to town that mysteriously had a gold chain she had lost returned to her. It's only then that a kindly old neighbor tells her the secret of Huck. Huck's backstory is shrouded in mystery. Like Superman, he's an orphan, but he was left on the doorsteps of a local church. From there, we see Huck going about his life, helping others remove stumps, taking out everyone's garbage, etc. Everything is business as usual until Huck sees a news story about 200 girls kidnapped from a school in Northern Africa by Boko Haram fighters. So, Stripped right out of the headlines, if you will, as they say on Law and Order. (laughs) When Huck takes his powers overseas, the media notices. The new neighbor in town calls in a tip to who helped the girls. Huck's life looks to be making a huge change. The story here starts with almost no dialogue and an incredible three pages of Albuquerque's stunning art. Paired here with Dave McCaig's soft colors, it makes the book almost look like a Norman Rockwell painting at times. 
we see basically Huck in action. He's jumping from truck to truck and then he runs and dives off a cliff into a river or a lake where he finds the missing gold chain and it's just beautiful. We instantly get an idea for how powerful and agile the character is. Millar has never taken on a character this gentle and sweet and who knows by issue two Huck could be eating children but for now he's created a <laughs> feel-good story about a compelling and mysterious good guy with one of the best artists working today. I can't give this a bigger buy it. I loved this book. Yeah I liked it a lot. Miller basically came out and said that Huck is the direct result of his absolute displeasure with Man of Steel. Okay. And when he saw that movie, he wanted to make a book about a good person doing good things that helps people. Yeah. I mean, they could have, this could have been Superman in Smallville yeah. when he was young, easily. And everybody in Smallville kind of like, oh, keep quiet, but that Kent kid, God bless him or whatever, <laughs> right. you know? My fear with all books that Miller puts out is that it will eventually have a last panel straight out of Wanted where right. Huck looks at the camera. He's like, you far faces. <laughs> Huck splits a <laughs> prostitute in two and flips everyone yeah. off. <laughs> like, oh. But this was very sweet, very uh, gentle hearted. The art is gorgeous. I really, really enjoyed it. And just, I think having those stretches of panels with no dialogue just really, like, you know, letting the art do the talking. Very I think cinematic. That was very, very, very wise. Cinematic. Yeah. I just really enjoyed it. I didn't know what to expect because when they kind of when they announced it, it was kind of like, what happens if Forrest Gump has superpowers? Pretty much. And that's what it felt like. I just I loved the idea that the entire town up until that point was in agreement that Huck stays a secret. He's theirs. They look out for each other. I really enjoyed it. Something that I think would make Superman's origin much more interesting, too. If like Smallville. If everyone knew it. Knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm giving this a buy it. I really liked it. Superman, and I can't do anything. So that is a double leave it for the Black Knight and a double buy it for Huck. Now it's your turn. Get off your winged high horse and do your daily good deed by heading to the THN forums and letting us know what you thought of these comics. I've gone on record in the past as naming Thanksgiving my favorite holiday. Not Halloween, Thanksgiving. So here at the Ziggurat, we go all out every year for Turkey Day. This year, no exception. But it seems Joe got a little nuts with the invites, and the entire JSA and JLA will be joining us for dinner. That means we got to cook a load of turkeys and fast. So today, we're joined by the original Flash, Jake Eric, who will be spinning a giant spit over a drunken firestorm who's been on a fireball bender for two days now. So join us as we face these birds at super speed while we review 10 more of this week's new comics during the Ludicrous Speed Round! Ludicrous Speed! Go! Serving Soups, number one from Devil's Due slash First Comics. A fun premise can't save this book from a painfully unfunny script from Steve Stern and the Yuan twins. I've never cared for the Yuan twins. <laughs> you may They sound like bad guys in Cobra. <laughs> you may know them as those weird twins that played security guards in Observe and Report. They're actors. Seriously? Yeah. Okay. Couple that with some really, really rough cartooning from the brothers who are trying and failing to capture what I think is a early Judd Winnick circa Barry Ween vibe. Mm. It's not good. 
I wanted to like it, but I'm giving Serving Soups number one a leave it. Ooh, you got served. Hero Hourly, number one from 21 Pulp. This is the first 21 Pulp comic I've encountered, and it was great. This is genuinely funny. It's a story of a college grad who thought the world was his oyster, but just as he gets a job, a recession hits and the markets all crash. He's left working as a part-time hero with the benefits of chemicals and impart superpowers eight hours at a time. Great art from Carlo Trigo, I think his name's pronounced, and very funny writing from James Patrick. No relation. Hero Hourly kind of felt like the Wolf of Wall Street with superpowers, and I am giving it a buy it. Six, number one from 451 Media. It's a lot of numbers. Yeah. This is billed as being from the visionary George Pelicanos, one of the masterminds that brought us The Wire. But like all celebrity endorsed comics, it's written by someone else completely. It's like they stole the napkin he was like <laughs> writing on the bar after he passed out. <laughs> there were full motion video, live action video ads on CBR for this comic this really? week. Yeah. Weird. And like you can just tell that this thing was really bucking for getting options. Okay. They like this is a tailor-made movie pitch. And it's not that it was a bad issue. It's executed very well by scriptwriter Andrew Ewington and artist Mac Chatter. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Mac Chatter sounds like a stool pigeon in a detective novel. <laughs> uh, but it also feels very familiar. Six military comrades fake their deaths to smuggle home a fortune in gold, drugs, and guns that they find in the desert. And now they have to come out of hiding to save one of their own. Haven't I seen this movie before? I think so. Isn't this the plot of Three Kings? Yeah, pretty sure. Six number one is a skimmit. Tomboy number one from Danger Zone. Writer Mia Goodwin tells the story of a teen girl nerd turned murderous vigilante. The story starts with a dour Addison, our main character, covered in blood on the rooftop, facing off with a detective, and then quickly and very deftly switches to a flashback where we meet a decidedly different Addison living her carefree life with her police investigator father and retired grandfather. Addison is a happy nerd who's obsessed with a Sailor Moon type cartoon until she finds out she might have violent magic abilities. It's a, Whoa. Little, it's a little unclear, but it was well done. It felt... When I first read it, I was like, this is almost too spastic, but the character herself is very spastic, so it works with her. Great art by Jennifer Eli. Tomboy is another great Danger Zone comic. I'm giving it a buy it. All right. Spider-Woman, number one from Marvel. I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. Spider-Woman is one of Marvel's best titles running right now. On the eve of motherhood, Jessica Drew supervises the training of villain-turned-hero, the Porcupine. I love it. Alongside her partner, Ben Urich. As she delivers a poignant examination of the sacrifices someone has to make to become a parent. Beautiful art, as always, by Javier Rodriguez. I love this book. You will, too. Don't worry if you didn't read the previous series. Just pick up this issue and run with it. Spider-Woman number one gets an absolute buy it. Yeah, I loved it, too. Buy it for me. Red Thorn number one from Vertigo. This was billed as a comic about a girl whose drawings come to life, meeting her true love while evil forces of Scottish mythology plot their escape into reality. Vertigo. Instead, we got the story of an American investigating her sister's disappearance and has drawings that come to life and monsters and flashbacks and a one-year time jump. It was jarring to say the least and the amount writer David Bailey, let's go with that, tried to cram into this issue probably should have been spread out over at least the first three. Wonderful art by Megan Hedrick. I, I can't say that enough. She's her art is gorgeous. 
but the story was just a mess. I'm not sure where Red Thorn is going. It's going to be a very well-drawn ride, but I can only give it a skim it. Batman Europa, number one from DC. Ten years in the making. Yeah. This Maybe w- more. Yeah, right. <laughs> this was a pretty decent story about Batman following a trail of clues to Europe, trying to solve the mystery of the virus that will kill him within a week. I'm not really a fan of Brian Azzarello's ultra-noir bat dialogue, but this had kind of a throwback feel that I kind of appreciated. No surprise considering it was written 11 years ago. The issue is beautifully illustrated by Giuseppe Camincoli and Jim Lee. I complain about the new 52 costume designs a lot, but I didn't realize how badly I missed the classic Batman look until I saw it in action again. I don't know if I really needed this to see the light of day after so long, but it wasn't half bad. I'm giving Batman Europa number one a strong skimmit. The Mighty Thor number one from Marvel. Jason Aaron and Russell Dodderman are back with another issue of their Thor, but it's got a number one on the cover, which seems odd because Jane Foster is still dealing with all of the problems from the last run, including her cancer, which seems kind of silly because the Beast can bring the young X-Men forward in time, and he's not even as smart as Tony Stark or Reed Richards, but people still have cancer. I digress. Listen, <laughs> the Squadron Supreme miniseries from the 80s absolutely addressed the fact that cancer is just too hard to cure. Uh, all right. I digress. This is still the best-looking Marvel comic on the stands with incredible art by Dodderman, and Aaron seems to be setting up a War of the Ten Realms, and we still don't know where the original Thor went. Mighty Thor doesn't feel like a new number one or maybe the best jumping on point, but it's still excellent. It gets a huge buy-up from me. Secret Wars also one shot from Marvel. It's T-O-O. No, it's Secret Wars 2. Yeah. The name of the book is not Secret Wars also. <laughs> no, it's Secret Wars 2, T-O-O, also. These parody event tie-ins are usually real hit and miss, but this time, Marvel brought a ton of great talent to the table. Jonathan Hickman, Eric Powell, Kate Leth, Wow. Choose Rob Guillory, Ryan Brown of God Hates Astronauts. This was a really enjoyable, genuinely hilarious treat. Secret Wars 2, buy it! Wrath of the Eternal Warrior, number one from Valiant. This is not the Eternal Warrior comic I was expecting at all. Rather than the world-building story of Gilad defending the Geomancers through time, we get a look at what happens when Gilad dies, where he goes, how it affects those he loves. This is exactly the high-quality writing I've come to expect from Venditti at Valiant. And the art by Raul Allen is understated and amazing. I'm really excited to see where this goes. I'm giving Wrath the Eternal Warrior a buy it. Kathunk! That is your ludicrous speed round and Kathunk is the onomatopoeia of the week and the sound of a part-time hero getting hit by a car as seen in Hero Hourly number one. Come on, let's turkey try. Well, Matt, we did it. The entire JLA and JSA are here to share in our Thanksgiving feast. But is it just me or is my uncle drunk and taking credit for cooking everything? What is this bitch's problem? That's it. I'm going to say something to her. Joe, Joe, sit down. She's old and she's lonely. Why don't we change the subject and we'll just talk about some of next week's comics we're excited to read. There's no getting around it. Joe is going to stick around the car accident, wait for the meat wagon to show up (laughs) next week. (laughs) My pick for this week, out of sheer curiosity and not one lick of genuine excitement, (laughs) is the Dark Knight 3, The Master Race, number one, from DC Comics, written by, maybe, Frank Miller and Brian Azzarello. 
art by Andy Kubert. It's 48 pages for $5.99. That's way too f- expensive. Yeah. Here's your solicit. The epic ending you never saw coming and actually won't happen because there's going to be a fourth one. Yeah. Is here because you demanded it. Hold on. <laughs> Did we? No one demanded this. The Dark Knight rises again to face the dawn of the Master Race. Now, we all know that the Master Race is they're Kryptonian. The freed Kandorian bottle city prisoners. Right. So they're all Kryptonians. Uh, I'm sure madness will ensue. I don't really care what it's about. My guess is the Kryptonians come out and they just go murder everybody <laughs> because because uh, these guys don't care about our history or the characters or how they might actually act. <laughs> I don't care what it's about. I just have to see what they do. I have to see what they do. It's eight issues. Mercifully, Frank Miller is not drawing it. Yeah. But good Lord, I, I, I no, just can't imagine. Yeah, we can't, I got to see what happens. <laughs> Matt, what's your pick for next week? My pick is Ringside, number one from Image, written by Joe Keating. Nice to have him back with art by Nick Barber. 40 pages for $3.99. Much more reasonable. Here's your solicit. The professional wrestling epic begins in an oversized first issue. Ringside is an ongoing series set within the world of professional wrestling. I already told you who it was written and drawn by. With interconnected rotating perspectives akin to The Wire, each issue will explore the relationship between art and industry from the view of the wrestlers themselves, the creatives they work on, the suits in charge, and the fans cheering them all on. But that's just the beginning. The real violence is outside the ring. It's basically a real-life soap opera wrestling story. Yeah. Love it. I think, and Keating, great comic writer. Yeah, I like Joe Keating. Awesome. For you local peeps, you Omaha local listeners, Legend Comics and Coffee is giving away 100 free copies of Ringside Number 1 to the first 100 people that uh, pre-order tickets to next Saturday's Magnum Pro Wrestling Show. I'm there. If you go to Legend Comics and Coffee's Facebook page, you will see that post with the link to go buy tickets. Cool. The THN Trade of the Week goes to Krogan Adventures, five years service, written and illustrated by Chris Schweitzer. From Oni Press, I'm going to guess. It says yes. Okay, autocorrect. From Oni Press, 224 pages for 17.99. What a steal! That is a ridiculous steal. Here's your solicit. Chris Schweitzer's award-winning historical adventure series continues in this new full-color edition of Five Years Service when legionnaire Peter Krogan loses a friend and comrade to a violent sandstorm. He's forced to make a tough choice. Should he wait out the rapidly approaching end of his five-year term of service with the French Foreign Legion, or should he accept an offer of promotion and devote his life to a campaign whose purpose is an enigma to him? Krogan won't have much time to consider his options as he's besieged by the armies of the infamous Touaregs, under attack from desert raiders, beat down by the relentless heat, and trapped in a cave with a mysterious and terrible creature that is picking off the people in his party one by one. Krogan is forced to build an armor that will save his life and protect him. (laughs) I made up that last part. Yeah, you may have. This is... So, I picked this... Have you ever heard of Krogan Adventures? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard so many good things about Krogan Adventures, uh, and it's coming out next week in a very, very nice, affordable color edition from Oni. I think it sounds super fun. Yeah. I'm, I've always been interested in checking it out, and I just wanted to take a little time to spotlight it. Yeah. I think it's going to be great. Okay. I feel better. Good. 
But if she takes credit for my candied sweet potatoes, I'm kicking her old lady drunk ass to the car. Joe, come on. Be sure to head over to the THN forums and tell us what you had for Turkey Day and what you're excited to read next week. She's just an old drunk woman for crying out loud. It's no excuse. She's a superhero. <laughs> On the fourth episode of Every Month, Joe and I sit down to discuss an entire graphic novel for a little segment called Take a Look, It's in a Book. This month, Matt and I are digging into Craig Thompson's first all-ages graphic novel. That's debatable. We talked about this a couple months ago. This is his first all-ages. Goodbye, Chunky Rice was kind of all-ages. No, there was definitely some mature subjects. Mature themes, but it wasn't like mature. It was not for Didn't have dicks in it. This is a kid's book. Yeah, you're right. This is a kid's book. Thompson is famous for his work on emotional juggernauts like Blankets and Habibi. But here he's going for a comedic sci-fi story suitable for the whole family. Matt, did Thompson still find a way to make you cry? Almost. Little known fact, Thompson started his career drawing silly comics for Nickelodeon magazine. And now you know. I did not know that. While this is still a kid's book, and it absolutely is, it's zany, it's cartoony, it's colorful. The first color book he's done, by the way. So it definitely stands out. Kids are going to want to read this. It's really fun to look at. He still... Well, I mean, hell, it's schoolastic. Right. He still slips in his ecological themes big time here. He still slips in a lot of his themes of spirituality and family and the nature of identity and coming of age and stuff like that. This is the story... Classism. Big time. There are a lot of allegories. This is the story of a little girl who basically grows up with... Her middle-class parents, dad drives what is basically a space tugboat. He's a lumberjack. Yeah, he's a, they call him a lumberjack, but he's not cutting down trees. He collects whale poop, he's which is basically whale. the space energy of the future. It is oil, in a sense, here. And ironic sense, whales are making the oil, as instead of like oil you know, poisoning the seas and killing whales and stuff like that. Mom works as a fashion designer. She's an artist and grew up an artist, but is forced to get a job as basically a seamstress. She's a day laborer. Yeah. And as a day laborer in this very rich space station community where nobody really pays attention to politics or pollution or anything. They're just all worried about wearing fabulous outfits. Violet is our main character. She is a spunky. I'm going to say what? 10 to 12 year old girl. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Around there. She gets separated from her family, trying to save her father who has disappeared on a secret mission by the you know evil energy company that just sort of kicked him out into space. And she gets separated from mom, who she's been staying with on the space station in a search for her father. And dad sort of taught her to fly, you know, his spaceship a little bit here and there, gave her a chance to man the controls. So she knows how to fly through space. She basically kidnaps a chicken who is this very <laughs> OCD spiritualist chicken that works on the space station, finding perfect buttons for outfits. He's a button scrounger. But, and when he's not doing that, he has a dream journal where he keeps very close track of his what he thinks may be visions of the future. He sort of fancies himself as a bit of a prophet, I guess. He thinks he sees glimpses of the future, but he might just be kind of crazy. 
We also meet Violet's friend Zacchaeus, who is the last, well, not really the last, but we find out more about that later. The last of his race, the Lumpkins, he lives in a junkyard and just basically smashes stuff all day. And the two characters of the chicken and Zacchaeus sort of represent these two different sides of childhood. One is a very, you know, nerdy, introverted. He's a bit of a germ freak. He's a nerd. He's obsessed with his writings. And Zacchaeus is the spaz. He's like, let's just smash stuff and go on adventures. He's rough and tumble. Right. And so the two of them set out with Violet to find her father in the process they learn a lot about each other <laughs> and a little about love. In the process, Thompson is able to infuse the story with his very deep ecological messages. The whales are sick from eating all this junk, so they have diarrhea, which is like a giant oil spill that the rich people really don't care about and just see as a problem to be cleaned by the lower classes. Violet is basically flung into this adventure and she's never really scared of anything. Violet is a very brave, very outspoken, very fun character. She's adorable, but believable as a child. The whole adventure is just ridiculous and still very relatable as well. It's cartoony and silly, but very, still very sci-fi, beautifully drawn. And being this is Thompson's first color work, he went and got Dave Stewart to do the colors and Stuart nails it here. This looks like you are watching a cartoon. It's huge. It's like 300 and how many pages? It was 350 some pages. 350 pages. You can read this in two hours. Yep. I read it in over Easy. the period of two lunch hours at work. It's a quick read. And a lot of it is just drinking in the very gorgeous, detailed, lush artwork. Right. The story is very, I mean, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of allegory. There are a lot of different characters with a lot of different personalities, but it's also very, not slight, but it's breezy. Breezy enough that a, a kid can follow it and still have fun with it. Right. Whereas like a parent that's reading this, I, you can tell that he made this an homage to uh, two friends of his that have a daughter. And the dad in this is like an ex-biker badass turned, you know, lumberjack. And mom is sort of this ex-artist turned seamstress. And it's very relatable for like a child raised by two really cool parents who aren't necessarily like the classic family, but are doing a great job raising their kid. And because they're doing this great job, the kid is brave enough to go on this adventure and show all these other adults how wrong they are about their ideas of the space whales as creatures of what their poop does to the ecology and all of the universe and stuff. And it's like her innocence <laughs> kind of brings everyone together. It's sweet. It's very lightly written, but it's still very deep. Like any of other Thompson's books. And there are a couple tear jerking moments. <laughs> there really yeah, are. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's really great how Thompson kind of runs the gamut of themes. Not only does it cover the ecological and the familial allegories that uh, and the class divide kind of allegories that the adults will read into it. But there's also all these themes of uh, for the kids to latch on to like poop the, jokes. Well, no, I, <laughs> yes, but I don't. That's not a theme. No, uh, I'm talking more like having to switch schools or right. having your friends uh, start acting differently towards you because they start to learn what it means to have money and, right. and having uh, just behaving shitty because, oh, you're poor. You know, that sort of thing where like a year ago they didn't care about that. You were all 
on a level playing field. Right. And so there are, it operates on many different levels. And I think anyone that, that picks this up is going to get something really great out of it. It's beautiful to look at. Dave Stewart, of course, was the perfect choice to color this book. I don't know how he did it. I Truly. Because this art is so, de- is so detailed. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't imagine the amount of time this book took to produce. Well, And that's like Thompson, his work. And we say this all the time. It's deceptively simple. Here he's cartooning. It looks like a cartoon, but every panel is packed full of so much stuff yeah. and little arrows to direct you as the characters run through these ridiculous sci-fi landscapes. I, I can't give this a bigger buy it. It's a buy it from me as well. I really, really enjoyed it. I, I think it's just amazing that Thompson can make a jump to something like this and still just kill it. That guy is so talented. It seems like he can do no wrong. Agreed. If you also read Space Dumplings, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this or any other of the graphic novels we've reviewed in the past. So, you guessed it. Head over to the THN forums to the Take a Look It's in a Book section. Next month, Matt and I will be reading the Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas graphic novel from Top Shelf, written and drawn by Troy Little. I've never read anything Hunter S. Thompson. I've read a lot of Hunter S. Thompson. Never seen the movies. I only know, like, little memes from it. Okay. (laughs) So... (laughs) I'm sure it's going to really turn my worldview upside down. (laughs) If you'd like to follow along, go pick up a copy at your local comic shop now. Wait. Now. Thank the maker this is over. But no, there's more. It's our Thanksgiving show, so it only seemed right to stuff this episode with an extra helping of nerdy goodness. Ladies and gentle nerds, it is my pleasure to introduce our newest love slave, Elise Wisdom, with her new monthly segment, Words of Wisdom. It's about time we got some lady power in this sausage party, huh? Gross. <laughs> Hello, listen nerds, and welcome to Words of Wisdom, a place where a lady's perspective is given along with a touch of class. That being said, I thought about calling the segment Seven Minutes in Heaven with Elise, but there's no way I want to entertain any of you boners for seven minutes. So for my first segment, I thought it would be fun to talk about the sexy costumes of superheroines and their eye-rollingly impractical applications. The tightness and placements of some garments is beyond baffling. They're flat-out impossible. Do super ladies all have super strong ankles to keep them from snapping off while running, jumping, and fighting in heels? I can't even walk the block and a half from the parking garage to my office in heels. I have to wear sneakers and carry my work shoes in a bag. Like a sandwich. And speaking of sandwiches, there's no way Power Girl is going to eat any of that turkey she's bending over to serve in that Thanksgiving issue unless she has a special sweatpant version of her costume to fight crime in after a heavy meal. Calm down, pervs. I'm sure there's still a hole in the chest. I would love to see a panel featuring Catwoman and Poison Ivy complain to each other after a Thanksgiving feast about how bloated they are they can't fit into their costumes. And then they ask who designed the costumes in the first place only to reply with, I don't know, some dudes. Scrap three of the Harley Quinn books and do a one-off of that. I can't tell you how many times I've guffawed at some of the comic book covers I've seen in comic shops featuring tough ladies in barely their attire in positions that would split a mortal woman in half. I usually just accept that those books weren't written for me and move along, but our beloved Wooly Toots recently brought something to my attention that I could not ignore. He mentioned a costume change for Red Sonia and his disapproval of the end times for the chainmail bikini in favor of something a little more PC. At first, I thought this was great news, 
I love a lot of the changes that female characters have been getting in comics, from more practical shoes to slightly smaller boobs. Thanks, Orca. Progress has slowly been making its way into the boards and bags of comic shops around the world, so I was expecting something awesome. But when I looked up the costume change and compared it to the chainmail bikini, something happened to me that I didn't think was possible. I preferred the chainmail bikini. I am by no means a Red Sonya fan, but I can't deny the fun in seeing a ridiculous sexy woman in a chainmail bikini messing some stuff up. It's barbaric and kitschy and it knows exactly what it is and doesn't make apologies for it. And I kind of admire that. Without the bikini, something just gets lost. When you start taking everything seriously, you lose a lot of the fun that made you enjoy it in the first place. And it didn't stop with Red Sonya. I started looking at some of the same comics that weren't made for me in a whole new light. Sure, these women are wearing heels and fishnets and paint on their unitards. And yeah, it's unrealistic, but this isn't real life. And isn't that the whole point? But even if they were real-life role models, what's so bad about showing the world that you're powerful enough to wear stilettos to a fight? I wouldn't want to fight that chick, because I'd lose. Wait just a hugger-fluffin' minute. You guys, you might be witnessing a Thanksgiving miracle. My black feminist heart has grown three sizes this day, and instead of rolling my eyes at all the sexy comic book covers this Wednesday... I will tolerate them because I don't believe in miracles and accepting something is not the same thing as liking it. Suck it, pervs. Now excuse me while I go have some stuffing and pie and secretly wish I could pull off wearing spandex. You're kicking ass, ladies. And I'll be damned if you don't look good doing it. Happy Thanksgiving, nerds. Wisdom out. Sort of break it it down like this. And that is it for the Turkey Day episode of THN. If you dig podcasts and aren't afraid to base their birds with a little pork fat, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And while you're there, leave us your star ratings, your reviews, your thumbs up, or hearts. It helps us to connect with other potential listeners. Thanks to all of our donors. Thanks to you guys. I will never want for canned cranberry sauce again. I love that. Are you kidding me? Nope. If you want to help support THN, you can do so by clicking our PayPal button at twoheadednerd.com. And to become a sustaining member, it's as easy as clicking the make this donation monthly box. And as little as a dollar a month really does help. If you're interested in sponsoring THN, shoot us an email with the subject line sponsorship. If you want to yell at us personally, you can head over to twoheadednerd.com. There you can find links to all of our contact info via Periscope, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Tumblr, where we post the outtake of the week, Skype, and more importantly, the Ziggurat Hotline, 402-819-4894. Call us. Leave us a message. Just say hi. Somebody was sweet enough to call in with a happy anniversary. It was Anthony. Anthony called this week just to say hi. What a guy. Yeah. If you dig the music you hear on the show, you can subscribe to our soundtrack playlist on Spotify by searching for Matt Bomb's Spotify. <laughs> Spotify. That's a different site. Spotify <laughs> profile. Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to the grand wizard of the comic industry, Alan Moore, not a racist, who celebrated his 62nd birthday on be. New Comic to Book To be fair, Day he might be. We don't know him. <laughs> this week. Word to you, you crazy old bastard. Quick shout Mr. out. Mr. Moore. Also, quick shout out to Carl Smith. The second issue of his anthology series, Be Careful What You Wish For. That's right. Dropped this week. You can find it online. Search for Carl Smith. Be careful what you wish for. You'll find the damn thing. The website's really weird, like Goad Kicker or something. I don't know the exact URL. We'll have a link in the notes. I'll put it it in the notes. You won't look at it. Google Carl Smith. 
be careful what you wish for. You'll get there. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics because your retailer just might grow a beard and cast a spell on you if you don't. This is a two-headed nerd. Steining off! Hope you have a happy Thanksgiving, nerds. Hello!